Just a quick reminder that if you are in or around the Toronto area on April 18th at 7 p.m. at the Fox Theatre, me and Will Sloan will be presenting the first screening of the Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classic Series with Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx. We'll be doing an intro on stage, there will be a Gold Ninja video table, and there's even maybe a special video introduction by someone that appears in the movie, which you can only experience by going to the Fox Theater on April 18th at 7 p.m. I hope to see you there. Hello, my name's Justin McClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about one of the great unheralded action directors, Isaac Florentine. So this is a filmmaker who I've wanted to look into for years. I've been hearing about him for over a decade now. For me. <laughs> from you, but also from the vulgar tourists. Mm-hmm. And that's probably too deep a rabbit hole to go down now. Yeah, let's not it? go down that. But there have been a lot of people over the years who have said, of all the people making direct-to-video American action movies right now, this guy is the best. And he's been doing it for a long time. He's been churning away since the late 80s making movies and his style has only been refined as he went and his style I think is the thing that makes him as impactful as he is in that he figured out exactly the way that he wanted to present actions in a very specific bold way and he also loves the genre, and I think that's very important. So what I've been hearing about him for years is that there are these direct-to-video action movies, you know, forget about your Steven Seagal, you know, <laughs> forget about all that stuff. There's this guy who's making them where they're very stripped down, they're not very fancy at all, but the fight scenes, the action scenes will blow your mind. Mm-hmm. And also, these are the movies that made Scott Adkins a star. Now, you may be listening and saying, who's Scott Adkins? Well, first of all, you just saw him in John Wick 4. Mm-hmm. He played uh, the the fat guy. Yes, so he was in a rubber suit for that role. <laughs> and you've also seen him in lots of other movies because he's third henchman from the left. On, yeah, and like a Bourne movie. Or like the, the Steve Martin Pink Panther or stuff like he that. He was Deadpool after he got his mouth sewn shut in Wolverine Origins. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But now he is like a bonafide star who's always like one step away from getting the theatrical roles that I think he could handle very well. Now, the reason that I've never actually explored these Isaac Florentine movies is you look at the filmography and there's so much there and they're all well, so many of them are sequels to movies I've never seen. So the movies that I picked for Will to watch are all sequels. U.S. Seals 2, Undisputed 2, and Ninja 2, Shadow of a Tear. And I just want to pause on Undisputed 2 for a sec because it's a sequel to the Walter Hill movie with Wesley Snipes. Mm-hmm. That's who was in it, right? Wesley Snipes? Absolutely. And that one, I remember that coming out theatrically. So this is a movie that's from that realm of, I don't know, Snake Eyes 2 or American Psycho well, 2. They're still coming out. Yeah, like companies like Universal going, hey, we can put these movies out completely unrelated to them even though sometimes a new actor will be playing the main role like michael j white in undisputed 2 is supposed to be wesley snipes from undisputed okay it doesn't matter though like that there's not enough like links to make you have to watch the first one and as we know like if you saw these coming out if you went to a video store in the mid-2000s you'd look at those and you'd say that looks like shit that why would i watch that yeah and 
to be honest, most of them are pretty bad that are done by journeymen who can just crank out a movie like Inside Man 2. Yes, a sequel to the Spike Lee film came out a couple of years ago and they can get it done on time, on budget. Maybe someone will enjoy it, but it doesn't really have like big fans. I do kind of wish I saw some of these movies blind without knowing who, who it was because I could just imagine myself renting one of these, watching, you know, the first 10 minutes and thinking this is terrible. And then all of a sudden, when one of the fight starts just being like, whoa, what was that? So I have a pretty kind of like legendary, almost pulling the sword out of the stone experience with US Seals 2 because I bought it at a music world. I think it was like three DVDs for $15, which you never see. And I picked up US Seals 2 and Albert Pune's Mean Guns Oh my God. on that same deal. And this is, you know, this is like when John, Lennon, John Lennon bought his first guitar or yeah. whatever. <laughs> and I think it was because people at the Kung Fu Cult Cinema Forum recommended it. And U.S. Seals 2, you look at the cover of the DVD and it's like a guy in a frogman suit. You could get not get a more Photoshop, just generic DVD cover because the people who made it probably didn't see the film and were just selling what was based on the title. Now, we'll get to those movies in a second, but just a little bit about Isaac Florentine's background. He was born in Israel. He had the standard youth that lots of people born in Israel have, you know, served in the Israeli Defense League, etc., etc. Grew up loving movies. Sergio Leone, Bruce Lee were two big favorites, as well as the silent clowns, you know, Chaplin, Keaton, Harold Lloyd. He loved them. And it's from the silent comedians in particular that he borrowed his shooting style. Something important to remember about Isaac Florentine when his kind of golden age movies were coming out is this is this is the shaky cam period. This mm -hmm. is when everybody was complaining that there was so much fast cutting and editing in movies like The Born The Born Supremacy or whatever to sort of distract from the fact that like Matt Damon's not a fighter, right? Mm -hmm. And so he got started making a short film with the amazing title called Farewell Terminator in 1987, and from there he was able to make a Desert Kickboxer in 1992. For or Golan and Globus's company, or actually, it was not Golan and Globus. It was one of them, right? It was Menahem Golan's, the company he had after Canon Films, Desert Kickboxer. You've seen that, right? Yeah. What can you say? It's fairly generic. Like, he's kind of, like, figuring out what he wants to do. But what's most important, and is kind of the defining text of Isaac Florentine's career, is being hired as the second unit director on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in 1993. So what did he bring to Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? So he shot all of the fight scenes of the that were like the interstitials between the old footage from the Tokusatsu shows from Japan. So wait, the, the Japanese show, I'm actually learning about this for the first time. I kind of assumed that any time they had the costume on, that was Japanese stuff. Incorrect. So they would fight the putties sometimes when they would transform or even just like sometimes they would fight as well before they would transform. And that would be new footage that was directed by Isaac Florentine and choreographed by Alpha Stunt Team, mostly led by Koichi Sakamoto who also choreographed Steve Wang's Drive, one of the most talented action choreographers still working today. I mean, say what you will about the Power Rangers. You look at you look at the fight scenes they're on good. that show. They are good. Like they're taking like Hong Kong stunt falls. They're doing Hong Kong spins. And I think that a lot of people who kind of fell in love with martial arts, it comes at first from those Power Rangers episodes. And what he brought to them was a very particular style, which is very whooshy. When someone moves, it's like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. 
very impactful. Every camera move is clearly defined. And I think that style had to come out of the fact that he wanted to make an impact with the way that he shot these fight sequences to make them not just filler because he genuinely cared and the fact that the productions were so low budget that this is the only way he could shoot these fight scenes as well. People say that the first of his directorial feature credits where you really see the style is his third one, High Voltage from 1997. And High Voltage is okay, but he's figuring out kind of what he wants to do. It's about bank robbers. There's like mostly gunfights, which is never his strength. And there's some stunts here or there choreographed by Koichi Sakamoto, but it isn't one that I would recommend people go towards. It's him figuring out like, what am I good at when it comes to doing these kind of action movies? Is it Quentin Tarantino style ripoffs? No, it is not. It is martial arts. That was what I'm passionate about. And that's where he's flourished when he's gotten the opportunity to make those kind of movies. And before we get to the major movies, I just want to briefly quiz you on Max Havoc, Curse of the Dragon from 2004, because this is, of course, a legendary collaboration between Isaac Florentine and Albert Pune. Well, it's not a collaboration. Okay. Basically, <laughs> Albert Pune shot the movie and he didn't finish it and he was let go. And Isaac Florentine came in to salvage it and he basically just did the climax of the movie. And maybe some little parts throughout, but just to give it a completed film. Would not recommend in any way, shape, or form. When does Isaac Florentine's golden period start? I would say that, you know, his golden period definitely starts with a U.S. Seals 2, but even before then, he's really figuring out what works and is just seeing how far he can push things. So he's always working on the Power Rangers show. Like, they keep bringing him back for stuff like Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue in 2000 because he's the one who set the template for what the new footage looks like. But then you have stuff like Cold Harvest, which is a post-apocalyptic film starring Gary Daniels, who seems like he is ready-made to appear in Isaac Florentine films. And it's okay. It feels incredibly cheap, which is something that I will continually say throughout this episode, because Isaac Florentine, for all the success he can do at pulling this stuff off, the budgets get lower and lower. And it should be noted that he mostly works for Avi Lerner, who had New Image and would then later create a Millennium Films. Right. And they are Millennium Films is sort of like the canon films of mm-hmm. the 21st century where they do a lot of like direct to video shit as well as like they did Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans and mm-hmm. some some more artsier movies. The difference between Golan and Globus and Lerner is that Golan and Globus genuinely loved movies that like they would put all their money in a Jean-Luc Godard film because they liked the idea of funding those types of things. Lerner has been very candid that he just wants to make money. He doesn't care about the movies as long as there's a return on investment. That's all he is looking for. And so Isaac Florentine has to work within these limitations, very rarely being given enough money to achieve what he wants. For example, Bridge of the Dragons in 1999, Dolph Lundgren, post-apocalyptic. They're shooting in Bulgaria. So you got all of the big sets and, you know, locations. Again, mostly gun action. So uh, Isaac Florentine never seemed to figure out like how he could make gun action work for him. So it's a lot of like Dolph Lundgren jumping to the side, firing a pistol. There'll be like a crazy, you know, someone being shot and falling into a table, but it doesn't give you what you want. By the way, I was excited for this episode because I knew A, I would see some fun movies and B, I could just put the quarter in Justin <laughs> and he would, <laughs> he would do the heavy lifting. <laughs> but US Seals 2 is when like, 
people went, whoa, 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 who is this Isaac Florentine guy? And it's so funny that it's U.S. Seals 2 that it happened. Yeah, I mean, this is a very unpromising looking movie. It is kind of uh, Top Gun meets The Rock, but on a much, much lower budget. Mm-hmm. You, you say know, Top Gun, like people will be flying <laughs> planes. Oh, no. no, there's, no, no. There, there's no pla- there's just guys who would be in planes. Yes. And, the, you know, it's, you know, a standard kind of like neo-Cold War adventure where the Russians are, I don't know why the Russians, but the Russians are going to launch a nuclear strike on the U.S and the, the best of the best, led by Michael Wirth, the uh, great Blue, Bruce Boitation scholar, have to have to infiltrate this chemical, this disused chemical plant. Now, you hear all this and you go, oh boy, it's going to be like the previous films. There's one specific thing that makes us pure Florentine. <laughs> oh, is there? Yeah. Well, you know, on this island that they're going to be on, you can't use any guns because it will cause an explosion. So I guess you'll have to use your fists and whatever weapons are around. So this movie has an element in it that made me feel like I was going insane while I was watching it, which is anytime anyone moves, whoosh, whoosh, any movement, any, like not just when they punch, but when somebody like raises a finger, yes, whoosh, and that's whoosh. purely from Power Rangers. I, I thought I was going crazy, but it goes, I don't know, it, it connects with the whole style of the movie, which is like in all of these Isaac Quarantine movies for the first five or 10 minutes, I think, wow, this looks really bad and tacky, but I think he really embraces badness and tackiness, if that makes sense. Like he's not out to deconstruct the genre he wants to give a turbocharged example of the genre so any cliche like this movie starts and it feels like decker and i think he knows that and he likes it you i know? think he just enjoys this yeah yeah that he wants to push it as far as he can and so it like it's a little bit absurd like all of his his choices with the camera are just making these guys look super heroic or super villainous and what's interesting about u.s seals too is that it's the start of his golden period and while michael worse is a very talented martial artist he is still working with people that while they can throw kicks and punches i think he has to kind of work around and it isn't until scott atkins comes in the picture that things change but i want to get back to u.s seals too because i don't feel like we have kind of let people know what this movie is when it starts which is one long hour-long fight scene. That's right. So it's like set up where the terrorists, you know, hijack a plane and they have this this woman on it who's a nuclear physicist who it knows how to create an atomic bomb, basically. Mm. And then, yeah, the, the SEALs, the best of the best, they infiltrate they, this factory. And they all have their own specific weapon. One yeah. of the guys uses knives. One of the villains has like a big pole that he uses. <laughs> like, this is one where, I, I mean, the action is good in this movie. It's really well photographed. But... Uh, choreographed by Andy Chang, one of a, a JC stunt team members. But compared to the other ones, I was less impressed by the action as I was just by the general style of it, mm-hmm. just the general vibe. Like, it's almost Kung Fu Hustle in the level of... Very cartoony. Ab- absurdity. Yes. But he's also figuring out how to show action in compelling ways here, not allowing it to be cutty, also embracing the ridiculousness of it. For example, Andy Chang plays a villain in the movie who uses his scarf as a weapon, so he just takes his scarf off. Oh, yeah. Like, there's so much creativity. There's so much, like, thinking about, like, interesting ways to shoot stuff, interesting things to do with, you know, props and actors. And, I don't know, I, watching this movie, there's just so much, like, joy that emanates mm-hmm. from it. Like, it's it's a it's a really joyous movie, and you just think of all the bad direct-to-video movies. Well, I think of someone like Bertrand Tavernier, the critic and filmmaker, who said 
he couldn't believe watching some of the B movies that were made because the people actually tried. And there's a lot of B movies where no one tries, but it takes like 200% effort to go, okay, within these confines, I want to make something good. I care about what I'm making. Well, there's that Orson Welles quote about, you know, filmmaking is the greatest train set a boy ever had. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's very difficult working for Avi Lerner. I'm sure it's yeah. very difficult making a movie for no money in two weeks. But like in Florentine, you get this sense of like, okay, but isn't it so fun? We're making a movie. So what is the difference? Just phoning it in and doing it like US Seals 3 or going and doing scenes where like the villain throws his jacket in the air and then cuts it in half as he like runs towards the guy and they get into a sword fight under sprinklers it's like to him from a like career path means nothing because like learner this movie comes out makes some money he's not gonna be any more successful if he went all the way or you know he just phoned it in but he always goes all the way in every movie that he makes he's creative and he's figuring out way to present action no one makes movies like this well i mean you look at keone waxman who's seagal's Ooh. guy and it's just it's just so dreary and i think it's i guess it's just so easy to kind of fall into a we don't have the time we don't have the budget mm, so why even try but like even the dialogue scenes in florentine's movies and florentine like by no means is at his best doing dialogue scenes but he figures out fun ways to shoot them and the, what's weird about dialogue in florentine film is they always seem dubbed like yeah. every movie even undisputed 2 okay like so undisputed 2 which is another one like you know compare it to ringo lamb's in hell with jcvd mm -hmm. which like has its good points mm -hmm. but this is another like trapped in a hellhole prison in you know eastern europe movie or russia in this case and in hell is sort of like a dreary unpleasant movie but this is one where like it starts with scott atkins who's the villain boyka boyka you know the 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 greatest underground russia fighter of all time and it starts with him like you know praying to his little shrine in his prison while the music is like oh and like this is such cornball cliche shit but it leans so hard into it it's on the verge of being a parody of this kind of thing well if you are leaning that hard into it i think that if when the stuff breaks out that the genre demands is as heightened as that that you're like well it all works together then totally all playing on the same wavelength and like when scott atkins starts talking in that russian accent of his and like with the faces he's making it's almost like he's in a panto play mm -hmm. he's not going for realism at all no i don't think so and i think that's why the movie is as powerful as it is because i think a lot of action directors when they get there they're like you know tone it down what we're making is silly and so we want to kind of like take a step back try to avoid that silliness so people will take it seriously and by oftentimes doing that what it results in is like well this is boring like why am i watching this totally and like undisputed too which i liked a lot mm -hmm. you know does does not reinvent the wheel is not at all trying to reinvent the wheel all the stock characters you would expect are in here wait does michael j white have a cellmate that then betrays him of course he does all right okay so the plot is you know michael j white he's you know the retired champion who's trying to make a bit of money he's trying to you know he's he's doing commercials and stuff and on some trumped up drug charge uh he lands in this russian hellhole prison and of course there are twists and turns we find out certain people have betrayed him to get him in there this prison is run very corrupt 
corrupt, run by the mob, and it has this underground bare knuckle brawl ring that's bet on by the public. Where, so they brought yeah. Michael J. White in because they want someone to fight their ultimate fighter Boyka, and will even the odds, make them a little bit money because Boyka's been winning too much over the right. years. And he Boyka's played by Scott Adkins, and he's the best of the best. And these two together, you know, you got Scott Adkins doing this kind of like panto performance, and then you've got Michael J. White, who is you know hugely charismatic oh super charismatic he's one of those actors that you're like what happened why why couldn't he take off he got a hollywood shot he starred in spawn but that movie did nothing for his career black dynamite as well i guess but i think it's just it's a little bit of that bruce campbell problem of Mm. like he's almost too handsome he's Mm. like too too big on screen but like he talks and is like so fun to listen to you like you'd want him to be in a series of films where he's the action star and the films are great around him but instead you you often get stuff like falcon rising which is terrible but him and atkins are so good together because atkin hams it up as the villain and michael J. white is like able to you know his pure physicality kind of like does a lot of the work mm-hmm. and michael is also like the big muscular boxer and scott atkins is like the guy who flips and does impossible moves like jumping throwing a kick and then in the air he reverses before landing and kicks the guy with his other leg i mean it's in, it's some of the best stunts i've seen outside of hong kong mm-hmm. movies like so you know the way that florentine shoots all these fight scenes like there'll be medium shots you see the whole body in the frame long takes usually long takes like dense with moves the thing about florentine is that he figured out to shoot without coverage so when you watch these fight scenes there is no other way to cut these because he doesn't shoot like all right let's get a wide of them fighting and then let's get a close-up which is usually how hollywood productions work he's like okay get these moved correctly the camera will be moving in a crane going up and then maybe like you'll see a bunch of fight moves and then it'll whip over to the audience and like zoom into an audience member too i mean this film is choreographed by jj perry who would then go on to choreograph you know john wick 2 and is one of the best action choreographers working in the biz but when something like undisputed 2 was being made these guys who were incredibly talented were oftentimes working on big shows but weren't in control and could only take control on these little movies or like roadhouse 2 is another film that jj perry choreographed now ninja 2 shadow of a tear Mm -hmm. is you know i think widely considered one of the masterpieces one of the crown jewels of the florentine canon and i can watching it i can understand why florentine has never ascended to the a-list why he's never escaped that kind of direct-to-video ghetto because why do you think well i mean i like this whole movie Mm -hmm. first of all but you know the fight scenes are incredible and then between the fight scenes again he's not he's not transcending the genre like some of the dialogue in this movie what is a little action wonky movie transcends the genre well I, I i know i know but it's like it's a movie that sort of invites you to think this is tacky this is ridiculous or it dares you to think that you know but like why he, wouldn't you get that director to do something like the expendables 2 yeah. i completely agree but i think i think the idiots who made that look at ninja 2 and they say oh yeah well he's good at the fight stuff but all this other stuff isn't so good i think it's that simple mm. and like you look at the movie he made before this ninja and that was kind of supposed to be a theatrical release it was a ripoff of the much beloved ninja assassin remember that movie that the wachowskis produced that came out god that's so funny because i feel like more people are probably watching shadow of a tear now. absolutely yeah. and unfortunately i don't know what happened with that movie it sat on a shelf for a long time but like they shot like ninja has a much bigger budget than most florentine films it's on backlots too so like all the fight scenes take place on these like new york city backlots but there's like a structural problem and like scott atkins listen i love scott atkins his 
Achilles heel is doing an American accent that when he does that, he's boring. Like let him speak his regular speaking voice. Let him do an over the top Russian accent. But like in Ninja, his character is basically nothing until he starts fighting like 35 minutes in. Well, yeah, I felt that way about him in Ninja two shadow of a tear a bit. Yeah. Like I like him best when he's sort of hamming it up with an accent, but in this one, like, and I say, I say this with as much respect as possible because like, no, you know, nobody's better at fighting than him, but like some of the dramatic scenes, I, I felt a bit of a void mm. there. I like it when he's his eyes are filled with tears and he's talking yeah. about the death of his wife. Spoiler alert. But like if you look at him in John Wick 4, like he's great in that scene yes. where he's like up against Keanu and all the other actors very as well. Fun. And like acting wise, not only fighting, which he is very good at. And <laughs> I heard that like he's so good that, you know, it's the stuntmen that have problem keeping up with huh. him. Like they have to hit all their marks. And the way that Isaac Florentine shoots these fight scenes you know, I picked Ninja Shadow of the Tear. What I should have really picked is Seized, the newest film that Florentine made, only because there is the gigantic gap that if you go from Undisputed 2 to Seized, you're like, my God, they have no resources to work with anymore. Because like Ninja 2, there's like international locations, but you can also see Florentine kind of shoot, changing his style where like most of the fight scenes play out in one takes. And that's because Atkins can do that, that there's still that stylization, but like it's simpler, cleaner, because they have almost no resources to work with anymore. I certainly felt that. I mean, Undisputed 2, which came out in 2006. Oh, looks great. Shot on film. Shot on film. Mm -hmm. And then Ninja Shadow of a Tear, you know, there's a kind of, uh, let's, Digital call it, let's call it late style yeah. <laughs> quality to the visuals of it. But I think Ninja Shadow of the Tear, there's also like, you can feel Florentine going, let's push this further. Let's push it further. Like the movie is seemingly over and they're like, oh no, we yeah. saved the biggest fight scene for last. We're going to take on Kane Kasugi. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's ridiculous in a, in a good way and as it goes along I feel like there's a sort of escalation like like this was the first one I watched and once I got into the wavelength of of it the mm -hmm. fact that it was this almost like self parodic style that and and it escalates and gets more and more deranged as it goes along yeah I, I thoroughly enjoyed it the thing about Florentine is he always seemed like five years too late because like if he had showed up right in the early 90s and started directing films in like LA where PM Entertainment like he would have been perfect for that kind or of how about five years too early because now that John Wick 4 is such a huge movie mm -hmm. I mean like when Isaac Florentine was making these movies in the early 2010s or late 2000s that was kind of that rush hour 3 era where it's like yeah. well American audiences they only want like a two minute action scene and what they really want is the story the dialogue mm -hmm. like I could see Isaac Florentine like making a sort of John Wick style movie that could be a huge hit the problem with like DTV action movies now is that they have budgets of nothing so like unless Isaac Florentine gets a gig at like a streaming service and he gets money behind it, there's an issue there because like Seized was seemingly shot in like 12 days. You cannot shoot an action film in 12 days. Also, he's not an exciting new talent anymore. No, that's the other, yeah. He's been in the direct-to-video ghetto for so long. Yeah, you know? but like they're doing a John Wick spinoff called Ballerina and it's like, you know who they hired to direct that film? Len Wiseman. Oh. The guy who did like Underworld, Hack. Free or Die Hard, terrible. If you gave Isaac Florentine a call, I'm sure he'd be like, yes, please. Yep, no problem. Well, before we leave this topic forever, I do want to just quiz you on just some Isaac Florentine movies at random. Sure. His Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, The Shepherd Border Patrol from 2008. Now, that was one that he got because of the success of Undisputed 2, and it was taken out of his hands and re-edited. So there's some really odd editing stuff in that film, but it's better than I remember it being, revisiting it a few years ago, and 
then Jean-Claude Van Damme gives a very odd performance, which I very much enjoy. Okay, here's a fun one. Christian Slater and Donald Sutherland in 2012's Assassin's Bullet. Now, I don't know how this one came about. Undisputed 3 played a bunch of film festivals, which is the first for any Isaac Florentine film. Very successful, won some awards, and he was gifted after that film a vanity project for, it feels like the star of this film was maybe in a relationship with one of the producers because ah, it has that stink about it. I see. that like, And it's not an action film. Like, it's barely anything. And I feel bad that Florentine was forced to make this. Okay, what about his Antonio Banderas vehicle, Acts of Vengeance? Okay, so this movie I didn't like very much when I watched it. And reading interviews afterwards, I came to understand why it is the way that it is. It has a great concept, which is Banderas takes a vow of silence after his family is murdered until he gets revenge on the people that did it. The big problem with that is that he does voiceover throughout. He just will not shut up in voiceover, which feels like an editing thing that was enforced on Florentine. And it's also a film that came about after, unfortunately, his wife got sick and would go on to pass away, Florentine's wife. And I think that that kind of weighs heavily on the project. So you never feel him get the chance to kind of like go as far as he wants to. So you get kind of a more medium style film finally give me one more good one well the one that people are probably screaming if they're big florentine heads to me to talk about is undisputed three and undisputed three a favorite of everybody it makes scott atkins from the villain to the star of the film it has mark zoror no i'm mispronouncing that name who recently appeared in john wick 4 as the villain and it's just pure florentine it's again in prison it's again about underground fighting but it goes even more over the top than undisputed 2 because there isn't the kind of sheen of like well we need to make this look like a real movie and i think that's why people find it as impactful as it is and i would still recommend stuff like seize that as cheap as it is it's also fun to see Adkins and Florentine just go as far as they do with so little resources fighting in McMansions that you know that David Dakota was shooting like a week before in (laughs) doing what they're doing with again nothing he has a few movies coming out that look like they're a little bit bigger budget he has a Frank Grillo action movie and he's a guy that's like you know a DTV action star now hopefully he gets a little bit more resources and gets to make something great but Isaac Florentine has a pass forever as long as he keeps making movies I'm gonna keep watching them so, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Travis Neely. And he goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. I'd like to preemptively thank Justin for the batch of Gold Ninja movies I've ordered. Looking forward to watching them. Well, I hope you enjoy them. On the subject of physical media, I was wondering how you approach extras, making them, curating them, etc. A few years ago, I bought the Samuel Fuller box set that Indicator put out, and while I appreciate in abstract the amount of stuff that a label can put on a disc, I had a hard time with the six and a half hours of outtakes that was included in the set. All of it from a documentary that Tim Robbins made about Fuller. Do you have a throw-it-all-in approach to putting extras together? or is it more focused? So for anybody who might be listening to this podcast for the very first time, Justin is the proprietor of Gold Ninja Video. So what I learned in the last few days is a lot of people listen to this podcast and had no idea that I did this. Really? And it, uh, do I not talk about it? I feel like I talk about it so much, but clearly I don't enough. So I'll be doing more, I guess, you know, every time there's a new release, I try to mention it. But I guess if you miss an episode, you're like, eh, I don't like that stuff. Like you just lose it. So listen to every episode of the Important Cinema Club. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. But special 
special features. I mean, I would say yeah. What do you like? I like the throw it all in approach. Mm. I would I would like the Blu-ray to be kind of like a repository of everything possible. Listen, I'm not going to watch every single outtake of every single thing, but there are some things that mm. I am curious about. So I'm of the belief that there needs to be an entry level amount of special features that audiences can experience if they watch the movie and go, okay, let's watch some special features as well. Stuff that is approachable, usually 10 to 15 minutes long, and that there's one or two per disc and a commentary if you want to go the extra mile. And then I want to put everything possible that you can have. Like you don't need to watch those things. They're there. I hope it's not only that. Like sometimes I'll see a, a you know DVD or Blu-ray and it's like, Here's a movie, and here's six hours of outtakes. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch those six hours, but I'm glad they're there. When it comes to long-form outtakes, I mean, it wouldn't really work with the example that is given here, the Samuel Fuller thing. But, like, for example, there's three hours of outtakes on Sorority Babes and the Slime Bowlerama, directed by David Dakota, and he does commentary over them. Like, that's how you want to experience those types of things. So I got the Blu-ray box set of Monty Python's Flying Circus that they put out a few years ago, mm. and on it were was like a lot of footage from all of the raw tapes of the episodes Ugh. so like like the countdown to filming you know I, just I, like I would love that kind of stuff little asides and stuff like on the first episode the like the two frenchmen talking about like flying sheep there are like three takes of it and after the second take you hear Cleese go oh come on and like it's amazing. It's like finding a new room in a familiar house. But I, most people don't have that kind of relationship with mm. most things. So I like that stuff being included. It yeah. just it, you don't expect to watch it. It's only it's only for a certain elite like mm. favorite thing ever that you would watch that. Like I know that Saturn's Core, one of my favorite Blu-ray labels these days, like on SOV movies, still includes three hours of outtakes. Mm. Like, am I going to watch those? Probably not if it's just the raw outtakes. But it's very interesting that it's there. And if even one person just loves the movie, it's their favorite movie of all time. They'll love those three-hour of outtakes. So I'd rather they be there than not. And the letter continues. And since I'm here and y'all are open to suggestions for future episodes, I would like to recommend an obscure action filmmaker that might be up y'all's alley named King Who. King Who, yes. Based on your letterbox profile. I've heard of him, yes. One of you has logged quite a few of his movies, and the other one hasn't logged any? Regardless, thanks for the countless hours of entertainment and brisk conversation. Thanks, Travis. Well, he's referring to me that I haven't logged any. I have watched... Yeah, you've seen some. I've seen them, but I had a time before Letterboxd, yeah. and it was from then. But I do, I like King Who, you know, A Touch of Zen. Huge uh, subject, though. Come Drink With Me. I mean, those movies are so long. I was surprised that, like, King Who... I think he has like maybe one monograph written about him on A Touch of Zen that that was written, but like no books dedicated to him, which is very surprising. And I think it kind of goes back to the availability of his films, which was very scarce for a long time. Of course, now they've had Criterion releases. Mm, or in the UK, they've come out. I, uh, I kind of have an appetite to watch Touch of Zen again because like it's such a beautiful film. I mean, God. I believe the last time I watched it was on a very ugly looking like laser disc rip because that's all that was available i saw it at the tiff light box when mm. they played it in like 2015 maybe so thank you very much for the letter and king who we're adding him to our repertoire next letter is from kevin barr and he goes hey porn cinema club well Two years ago, I wrote in asking for advice as a TA just starting grad school. And now I'm graduating with my master's in film studies in May. Congratulations. Congratulations. Good luck at finding work. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to be a teacher, because there's probably opportunities that way. Probably not, though, actually. Yeah, actually, no. Yeah. <laughs> this semester, after three semesters of TAing, I got to teach a class of my own design, and giving them my thesis was on Doris Wishman, Roberta Finley, and Something Weird Video. I figured it would be best to teach a class on exploitation cinema. Now that the semester is almost over and I can't second-guess every 
every decision I made. I wanted to run the list of films and topics by you guys and see what you think. Is there anything major I missed or would have substitute any other movie in to cover important topics? The list does skew American, but that's primarily because I was able to get the best in copies of American exploitation films. Foreign exploitation would likely have to be a whole other class on its own. All right, so we are the final like thesis. Arbiters. Yeah, arbiters. We will determine if his syllabus is good. And if it's not... You're going back to school, buddy. You're doing another three years. Okay. You got to restart. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> so the lineup is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these a little bit quick because there's 14 weeks of stuff. And, and I'll, just, to, I'll just do a quick, like, mm, quick answer. I okay. have to say, though, like, I've said this before, but I don't think I have in a few years. I took one class on film and I found it miserable. I did not like it. I did not like my TA who seemed disinterested and wasn't, you know, engaging that much. I took many classes on film of varying quality. Yeah. And I got to say, looking at this list of movies, I would be excited every week. Now, this is because I'm going in and I'm knowing this stuff, but I hope that the students that he taught to felt the same way. So week one, what is exploitation? Ed Wood, 1994, screening to get them in the right mindset for the types of films we'd be watching. I think that's a great start. Great, yeah. Great context setter. Week two, classic exploitation one, the drug scare film and other 30s oddities, Reefer Madness and Maniac. Yep. Would you put a different one in there? No, I think Reefer Madness. I mean, Reefer Madness is iconic. Mm. Week three, classic exploitation, the sex hygiene film, Mom and Dad. There you go. Kids are going to love that one. Oh, yeah. Actually, they might find it funny. Yeah, the thing about like these, this kind of breakdown is that it feels like as a TA, you're giving them something fresh every week, so it's not the same thing every time. You also have week four, classic exploitation three, the end of the era, Glenn or Glenda, and the Kroger Bab re-edit of Summer with Monica. Have you seen the Kroger Bag re-edit of (laughs) Summer with Monica? No, but I know that he bought Ingmar Berg summer with monica and he sex it up there's one scene in that movie where you see a woman's ass Mm -hmm. and so you know he retitled it monica story of a bad girl (laughs) (laughs) week five 50s teen picks and Roger Corman, Teenage Doll and Bucket of Blood. I've never seen Teenage Doll. Have you? I think I have, but I, I'm I'm struggling to remember. Week six. No, wait. I've seen Rock All Night. I haven't seen Teenage Doll. Week six. Sexploitation one. Nudists and nudies. Nude on the moon and boing. Oh, boing is the sound I'll be making. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully you have to leave the class and leave them to their... Oh, wait. Maybe even didn't show these movies. Maybe you just talked about them. That movie, though, Boing by Herschel Gordon-Lewis. That's a bit of a deeper cut. I mm. like that. So, Week seven, Sexploitation two, Ruffies, Kinkies, and White Coders. Aroused, nineteen sixty six. I'm not familiar with this. I've one. seen Aroused. It's good. It's a real New York Ruffie, you know. Mm-hmm. Week eight, the Splatter film, Blood Feast. Two H. G. Lewis's in this one. And I mean, if you're talking about the Splatter film, Blood Feast is the way to go. Would you recommend another one? I mean, that's the textbook one. Yeah, like the gruesome twosome, or uh... I think Blood Feast has got to be it, and I think they'll have fun. Have you ever been to an Egyptian feast? And I think it's only an hour long as well. Basically, he doesn't yeah. say. I wonder, do you watch films? in your TA class? Not usually, do you? Uh, yeah, I, oh, used to, okay. I used to watch films at school, yeah. You never were a TA, right? No. So next up, we have week nine, hippie exploitation and mansonploitation, the trip. That's interesting, that's, yeah. That's a fun yeah. one. It may be a little slow for the students, but, yeah. you know, you're taking a film class. You're probably used to this stuff by then. Week 10, black exploitation. Which one would you pick? I would pick coffee. He picked Truck Turner, okay. which is a more of a deep cut. I believe it's directed by Jonathan. Uh, was that Roger Corman alumni? Kaplan. Kaplan, yeah. And he's got a fun style. I, I really like Truck Turner, but yeah, it's definitely... It's a good know. pick. Yeah. yeah, good pick. Biker films and car exploitation. What would you go with? Uh, that's not Easy Rider. That's so not, exploitation. Uh, biker, well, the Wild Angels. Mm. He went with Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Okay, which I think is another good pick. That, oh yeah, okay. Car exploitation, sure. Yeah. yeah. Week 12, Kung Fu's Oversea Influence. Not a Bruce Lee. Not a Bruce Lee. Classic, though. 
Oh my god. One that I would not go with, but I know, I understand its historical value. A circle of Iron? No. Why? That would be an odd one, Circle of Iron. The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking too much like an American film. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, because... But like, 36th Chamber of Shaolin's that icon- is iconic. Iconic one. Ausploitation and other foreign exploitation movements. I mean, I would have maybe gone with The Man from Hong Kong. I might have gone with Mad Max, honestly, the first one. Mm. I don't know. But what do you, what do you, well, well, many people famous? have seen it, yeah. What, what's he gone for? Stunt Rock. Okay. Which is another, I've never seen it. Another film from the director of The Man from Hong Kong. I think the best thing about it is, is its trailer. Mm-hmm. And the film itself, it's all right. And Week 14, Modern Exploitation and Spectacle. It's a Hollywood film. What do you think of as like modern exploitation? Mondo-ish almost. Oh, God. I don't think you'll get this, but... Well, if 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 I were to come up with like what, what would be the most obvious... Like, like modern exploitation in a college syllabus, I would pick Hostel. Mm. He actually went with Jackass number two. Oh, good pick. That is a creative. Good pick. I yeah. like it. So I think after all of that, and you know, we took a pause, spoke for a few hours, decided if this would be a pass or fail. That's the system that we work under. Absolute pass. No content. It's an absolute pass. My only question is, you know, obviously there's not a lot there from the 80s or the 90s. And is that a conscious decision that it's just like focusing on the more classic periods? Because if you're doing the 80s, the 90s you would probably pick something from like full moon entertainment you know some kind of direct-to-video thing yeah i wonder what like the 80s exploitation film is that golden and globus and something yeah like probably enter the ninja yeah. like ninja phase or something or, like, or godfrey ho would be another example based on some of the choices that he picked in the syllabus yeah but you only have so many weeks to go through this and i understand that like it's very, leaning very heavily on like early exploitation to give them that backbone before you get to the stuff that maybe people would have recognized a little bit better. Good course. So thank you very much for that letter. And as per usual, if you want to send us letters, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So this week on our Patreon, look, it's been long enough. It's time to go back to a subject that's, you know, <laughs> something that we feel very passionate about, but don't get an opportunity to discuss very much. <laughs> Jackie Chan. Again. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. We did Jackie Chan last week, but we just saw Jackie's new movie right on and you know it's a two-parter because at the end of the gorgeous episode we go oh man we're excited for ride on it could be good we saw it we talk about it for somehow longer than gorgeous you can check that out on our patreon patreon.com slash the important cinema club is it jackie chance max rose well you'll have to watch it to find out (laughs) jackie chance max rose i use max rose all the time and people are like like what are they talking about (laughs) we should did we ever do an episode on max rose or did we i don't think we did we should do an episode on max rose Mm-hmm. So next week on the podcast, what could be more different? Gilo Pontecorvo. Now, I might be mispronouncing the name, but he is the director of the Battle of Algiers. That's right. And he also did not direct that many movies, but he did direct Burn, the Marlon Brando film, which Brando considered one of his best performances, and a few you know, documentaries after that. So I'm going to look forward to discuss this filmmaker. I got that new imprint Blu-ray of Burn sitting on my shelf. Very nice. I may have to watch both cuts because one of the cuts, the English language export version, has Marlon Brando's voice. The second version, which everybody says is superior, the Italian one, does not have Brando's voice. Well, you know what? This director didn't make that many films, so I can probably make that commitment. So, until next week, my name is Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I would like to thank some of the new patrons who have recently joined the Important Cinema Club, who include Kenneth Hagerman, Chris Monnan, Daniel Kane, W. Buttry, Mia Vitali, Rockwell White, Christopher Abernathy, Juan Damian, Yang Yu Liu, Patty Delaney, Lee Elliott, Matthew McGraw, 
Nicole Flowers, and Chris Moberly. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And just a regular reminder to give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can, and also check out our other podcasts. That includes Will Sloan on Michael and Us, and me on the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast, the Bay Street Video Podcast, where we go through all the new notable Blu-ray and DVD releases every week, and the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie Podcast. Well, we are talking about martial arts movies on this episode, and... When you think martial arts movie, who's the guy you think of? Bruce Lee. Correct. I thought you were going to throw me a curveball, but no, it's uh, Bruce Lee. I was a Bruce Lee. Bruce Love. Uh, no, yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. Bruce funny, Lee. Funny. It's Bruce Lee, folks. And just before we started recording, I delighted Justin. I knew this would delight him. That the, I, are you using that word? Yet another <laughs> blue. Yet another Blu-ray company is releasing the four Bruce Lee movies all over again. Now I admitted to Will something that shocked him to his core, which I don't have any of the Bruce Lee movies on DVD or Blu-ray anymore. I mean, you used to. I did. I had that Fortune Star box set that they put out. I mean, you love martial arts movies. I do. And you I, love the history of martial arts movies. Yes, I love them. So you're not Mr. Kung Fu has mm. no place on your shelf. Listen, I've seen those movies tons of times, not as ma- many times as probably most people, but I cannot imagine reaching over to watch the big boss myself short of it being related to some research that I'm doing. Now, this set that is being released by Arrow Films, will I buy it? Maybe. I'm going to tell you my history of owning Bruce Lee movies. I owned Fists of Fury and The Chinese Connection, mm-hmm. which were their American titles. You know what? I lied. I do have a Bruce Lee film still on DVD, I think. I have that two-disc edition of Enter the Dragon that was in that slipcase. Oh, yeah. And that came with all the documentaries on the second disc. So I had those movies on, you know, public domain DVDs. Then I had the snapper case of Enter the Dragon. Then the two-disc mm-hmm. of Enter the Dragon, which I still have because it has some documentaries on it you can't get anywhere else including Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey. I have the 40th anniversary Blu-ray set. And then I had the Fox Lorber Fortune Star. Yeah, that's the one I had. The blue case. Blue case. Thin cases. That had the three movies and Game of Death 2. Oh, yeah. That was that was the highlight. I remember watching that and be like, mm-hmm. Game of Death 2. Not I, many special features on that set, is there? There are some interviews and okay. stuff. I had a Chinatown bootleg of Way of the Dragon because the Hong Kong version had extra scenes that were not in the American export cut. Then I had a Hong Kong version of Tower of Death, which is... Differently edited than Game of Death 2. That's right. And then I got the Shout Factory big Blu-ray sets. Oh my god, you've bought them all! And then criterion put out their own bruce lee set and i said i'm not gonna buy that and then uh don semley was selling his blu-ray collection Mm -hmm. and he sold that one for 30 dollars. and i thought 30 dollars for game of death 2 on blu-ray yeah i'm gonna get it and and so i have that so this is how many times i've owned bruce lee on blu-ray and now i'm looking at this set this arrow release okay canadian if you were gonna pay for it with shipping would probably come to 250 dollars 250 dollars now i'm looking at this and i'm like i don't these movies aren't even very good why would i want to own Do you need to see them in 4k no because they look bad yeah they look bad but but then i'm looking at this and it's like ooh, newly uncovered deleted scenes from the big boss <laughs> okay two new documentaries on lee's fighting methods what is there left to say about bruce lee new interviews with actors including colleen camp who you'll recall was in game of death mm. she didn't work with bruce okay but she's in game of Wait, death was she in battle creek brawl uh, no, that was Christine DeBell. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like Christine DeBell. They're similar types. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm looking at an 80 minute documentary with Tony Raines. And then I'm looking at this and it's like, I kind of want it. I want it. Here's what none of the Blu ray sets have done. 
and would be an instant purchase for him. Make the movies good. No. <laughs> would be to get really into the weeds of this stuff. Basically pushing up against a Bruce Bloitation box set, which we hear is coming from Severin someday. For the love of God, when, when is it going to come? I want it. Why is there not the cut of Tower of Death, like the Hong Kong version and Game of Death 2? There's a Korean version of Tower of Death as well. If you can just get a VHS copy of it because there's no sell, that would be fine as well. So do you want like a Bruce Lee box set that incorporates more of this like like Bruce Lee, the man, the myth? Yeah, more of the ephemera. I feel like every Bruce Lee box set up The to real now, Bruce Lee, Fist of Fear, Touch yeah. of Death. I think the problem is, though, his family is very particular about the way that he's portrayed. So I would almost, you know, bet money that they have final say on this stuff. So, like, you can't really get into the, like, you know, spicy stuff that I would want people to get into. And that's the unfortunate thing with these box sets is that at the end of the day, all these special features need to be laudatory and that's all they can be. Well, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Bruce Lee scene, the famous Bruce Lee scene, I am of two minds about this because I hear people say, oh, Bruce Lee meant so much for representation. He meant so much for Asians in America. And here comes Tarantino wanting to cut him down a peg. And, and where does he have the right? And I get that. And I actually, I've incre I increasingly have respect for that point of view. But then... Alternatively, though, Bruce Lee has been the representation for Asia forever. Yes. And he is He's more, more God than man. Yes. And that scene in that movie is so refreshing because it's like, that's probably what he was like. Yeah. You read any biography yeah. or anybody talking not in an officially sanctioned thing. He was a little prick. Yeah. You know? That's how he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like refreshing to see yeah. it in that, that way. That doesn't make him not great. No. But, but he, he was he a was human. He was an asshole. That was yeah. that very clear. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that none of these discs will be like, man, Bruce Lee was a real jerk. And that's why that biography that came out a few years ago by Matthew Pauly, the book, mm -hmm. is so good because like I was reading that and it's like this is f the book I always wanted about him a book that like is frank that he was a bit of an asshole mm, which is like he got where he was because he was an asshole yeah. in certain ways because there were so many barriers that were in front of him mm -hmm. I'll just reiterate I just want a Bruce exploitation box set because I feel like in that I will get perspectives on Bruce Lee that I will not get anywhere else as well that's true and that's what like interests me the most I wonder if his family is like no Bruce exploitation box do you think they get involved that much with that kind of stuff I don't know mm -hmm. I mean they shouldn't because like what else can you learn about Bruce Lee at this point through special features like Tony Raines talking about well it's a, it's actually it's a good question because I was about to say nothing but I mean the thing about Bruce Lee is like he is the, he see, appears to be this endlessly adaptable icon like he keeps you know like his body of work is so fucking small and mm. yet he adapts to every generation he's in you look at dragon the bruce lee story the biopic from the 90s and then you look at the biopic that ang lee's making now and that comes out i can't believe there's another biopic about bruce lee coming out but those movies are going to say two entirely different things about what bruce lee meant to the but world they're still going to be laudatory as well yeah. because his family is probably signing off on that ang lee biopic sure. and like if we got a warts and all a bruce lee and i if you will yeah. the shaw brothers production that starred betty ting the woman that he died in her apartment yeah. yeah and i don't think we can ever get that because he's too much of an icon and that's the unfortunate thing about him and that if there was a little bit more humanity that was introduced to him warts and all 
I feel I would probably like him more. And that maybe my reaction is to that kind of like shining light when there's anything well, you're dealing re- with yeah. him directly. Your reaction is also that like Kung Fu, like fan culture hasn't moved past him. Yes. Which is like if you get Eastern Heroes magazine. Which I completely appreciate that they brought it back. It still exists. Eastern Heroes in the 90s ruled because they interviewed all the filmmakers that never got interviewed anywhere else. Like Lisa Nam has discussed articles about all this stuff. They restarted. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Cover story about Bruce Lee stuff. I'm like, what? what? There's so much. There's like, there's so much Hong Kong That's film. clearly what sells, though. Like, that's what people want. So, you know, I can't argue with that, right? Yeah. Like, if people want Bruce well, Lee, it's give a te- Bruce It's Lee. a testament to Bruce Lee. I mean, yeah. like, basically, for, like, what, you know, 20 minutes of scenes, you know, bas- and basically that scene in Enter the Dragon when he's in the subterranean lair and he's killing all the mm-hmm. villains, like, that scene has sustained him for, like, 50 years. And that's I would amazing. I say that, you know, there is a special feature on his fighting style. I'd be curious of a deconstruction Actually, of it. Sorry, I, I was being unfair because, like, what has also sustained him are the stories of his life mm-hmm. and, like, like you know, he's like a modern myth. And, yeah. and, you know, his fighting style, the bee water, you know, all that. But, like, in David Bordwell's book, Planet Hong Kong, there's some fascinating breakdowns of how Bruce Lee shot and edited his fight scenes and why they're as impactful as they are. So if someone's doing that and, like, breaking down the footage, going, like, shot shot by shot, movement by movement. I would be interested in that. And maybe one of the documentaries on this Arrow disc does that. So, you know, Arrow, send us a disc. Yeah, two, two, two please, sets. please. Yeah. And we'll review them. And, no, no problem. And we will review them positively. Yeah. If someone sends us something and you hear us talk about it, we will be positive. We can be bought. Remember that. 100%. Very easily. Arrow. We will do like an episode dedicated to like, <laughs> ah, the Bruce Lee set. It's so good. You need to get it even though you've bought it like Will four times. Five, before. six. Yeah. yeah. 